This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Welcome today from comedian Lee Camp, John Mill, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Progressive, The Green News Report, The Bugle, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, and David Sedaris. And I just want to say thank God this is the last episode before the election. This episode is a call for major street protests over the stolen election of 2012. I'm talking major protests. Quebec on steroids, Spain on meth, Occupy on Viagra, Egypt on Fun Dip. Snorted. Did he just call for a protest over something that hasn't happened yet? Yeah, I did. I'm predicting that the numbers will not add up, and that this coming election will be a farce, a show, a charade. I'm predicting that between the hours of midnight and 2 a.m., a sudden and inexplicable switch of 300,000 votes will happen in the electronic vote count of Ohio, while the numbers are being tallied in a basement somewhere by a Republican-controlled technology company. It will be a statistically impossible chance that the number change is genuine, and then most of the counties in Ohio will destroy all election records making it impossible to do a recount. I'm predicting that... Oh, uh, ah, I, I did it again. I confused my... I confused my history papers with my prediction papers. What I just read was what really did happen on election night 2004, handing the election to George W. Bumble. To make sure that doesn't happen again, we've carefully given the voting machines over to people we all trust, the Romney family. That's right. The voting machines in Ohio are now owned by a company called Heart Inner Civic, the majority share of which is owned by HIG Capital. Who are the major investors in HIG Capital? Almost entirely former Bain Capital employees, as well as Mitt Romney, Ann Romney, Tag Romney, and Tiglet Romney, or whatever the last one is. In order to make sure we have a fair election, we've given the already shady voter bots over to the dude who's in the election, you could literally have a more reliable result by giving the vote count over to Bernie Madoff and the insane clown posse. And right now, many of you are going, it doesn't matter. Obama and Romney are the same on 90% of the issues. And you know what? You're right. But this video is not about making sure Obama or Romney or Jill Stein or write-in candidates suck my wins the vote. It's about a true and genuine election. If the exit polls show something different from the computers, then we all need to lose our We all need to freak out worse than shaved-headed Britney or long-bearded Mel Gibson or Chris Brown on a Tuesday. Don't go to sleep. Don't beer bong a stiff drink and call it a night. Don't click off your TV and take your anger out on your 300,000 votes flipped in Ohio in 2004. Thousands of paper ballots lost in Florida in 2000. Hundreds of thousands of votes within Wisconsin in 2012, and each time everybody goes, man, that's such a democracy buzzkill. It might take two pints of Ben and Jerry's to get over this. If the polling data says one thing, and the numbers coming out of Tag Romney's Technologies Incorporated says something completely different, lose your damn mind. Consider this a preemptive call to action against those who want to turn our democracy into one of those games at the state fair where you win a prize for getting the basketball through the hoop, but secretly, the hoop is smaller than the basketball. Cast of been revised by moon.
This is John Mill with a quick comment. With all the attention the news media focus on what Republicans call voter identification, what with their voter ID laws and other restrictions, and what the rest of us call vote suppression, we who believe in freedom and liberty for all might reflect that our American electile dysfunction resides in too little voting, not too much of it. But if we focus too much on who gets to vote, we might be looking the wrong way when the other shoe drops. Who counts the vote? Electronic voting is not secure and is not auditable without a paper trail. Yet most e-voting machines do not create one. For all its virtues, such as efficiency and handicap accessibility, electronic voting, as it is currently implemented, is so easily perverted for partisan purposes that I think it puts democracy in peril. According to the Daily Bell, in October 2010, the D.C. Board of Elections and Ethics encouraged outside parties to try to find security holes in their online balloting infrastructure. A group of University of Michigan students successfully hacked into the system, commandeered passwords, doctored ballots, and programmed audio of the school's fight song to play whenever an e-ballot was submitted. And the hacktivist group known as Anonymous has shown that if you have official access to the computer system, altering ballots is even easier to do undetected. Just look at the incentives in the war on drugs, the lure of high profits for cheating, and you'll see the incentives to cheat in elections. Does anyone have so much faith in technology that they would bet their republic, indeed their very freedom and liberty, on it? No vote should be lost in 2012, said Penny Venetus, co-director of the Rutgers Law School Constitutional Litigation Clinic. Technology exists to verify votes, and procedures could be in place around the country to make sure that every vote is counted, as required by the Constitution. Our electoral system should not be hostage to a hanging chad or an elusive electron. Who counts the vote may turn out to be just as important as who gets to vote. This crawling out of my skin I know that you see yourself flying in There are many creepy ass holier-than-thou people trying to steal this election from you and from every voter. They have a lot of tricks up their Armani suit sleeves, but there are ways to make it harder for them. For one thing, don't go postal. It's tempting to think that absentee voting is better than in-booth voting because it's on paper and you send it in early and you don't have to deal with the little girls at the school selling stale cookies or the 85-year-old volunteer who glares at you because she lived next to you when you were 10 and once accused you of throwing tomatoes at her mailbox. Which you did, but still, it's, it's rude to glare. But it's simply better to show up on election day. Over half a million absentee votes were thrown out in the last election for reasons as lame as stray pencil marks on the page. Until I learned that, I had been drawing a naked ass on every ballot I'd ever cast. But when you vote absentee, they make you the ass. They throw a lot of them out. They don't count them. They might not even look at them. So just show up, buy the stupid cookies, ignore the angry Betty White, and have your vote counted. This is the first of seven ways to beat the ballot bandits, which you'll find at the back of Greg Pallas' new book, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. Seven Ways to Beat the Ballot Bandits is your ballot condom for safe voting. You can get those seven ways for free at ballotbandits.org. 
and I'm at LeeCamp.net. Keep fighting. So we all know that there's uh, some voter suppression happening around the country. Just a little. So here is, uh, I'm watching The View the other day, and here's Elizabeth Hasselbeck, and she's going to explain voter suppression for us. I want to demand photo ID for voting, right? And some people, um, including President Clinton, think that it, it's now becoming a race issue where it's discriminating against right. those who may not have photo ID, um, who, but who may want to vote. Yeah. Um, this is a tricky situation. You said yeah, this is a tricky. By tricky, she means the Republicans are trying to trick people into thinking they're trying to protect the vote and the integrity of it when they're actually trying to suppress the vote of minorities and the elderly. So when she says it's tricky, she means Republicans are magicians when it comes to suppressing the vote. That's what she means, okay? And here she goes on to, uh, but then Whoopi Goldberg steps in and explains to her that her own mother never had a photo ID. Whoopi Goldberg's mother. Um, never well, had an ID, saying, never my, drove. Well, she she didn't drive. You know, she registered. She you When she registered, she had her social security number. <laughs> right. She had a bill for where she was living right. so they could prove where she lived. Mm -hmm. And they gave you a voter registration card. Right. And that is what she voted but with for, for many, Can many years. Think? And, and oh, I just want to say, so a lot of the older voters who have been voting for years and years, and some of them are not drivers, some of them don't have the means to do stuff yes barbara you and so that's a whoopee story about her mother then barbara walters she also has a story and i had to then go and and which, which was okay you go down and you stand in line and it takes forever and now i have a, a, a my picture on it mm -hmm. so i really understand what it is it's a great effort mm -hmm. to have to get but that I, photo I do think and so, so that's barbara walters she's lived in manhattan all her life she's never driven i guess when she was sleeping with that senator she took a cab right <laughs> <laughs> well but in fairness also photography wasn't invented until she was way past voting age so. <laughs> that's right so here so that's two stories uh whoopi goldberg's mom right there next uh, sitting there barbara walters says it's a big pain in her ass a woman of means and then uh, here comes uh, elizabeth hasselbeck and i know yeah. we're short on time but i i do want to say this she, they're short on time, so she's going to have to hurry if she's going to sneak in a little misinformation. That's what she's saying. So here she goes. Ready? She's short on time. Well, it is a woman's show, so misinformation is a... That's, what, nice. that's your name. And so the only... Mm. Misinformation. So and the <laughs> And so now we've got so now we've got overwhelming evidence. We've got Whoopi's mother, Barbara, and so the only person who could still defend these "quote unquote" voter ID laws would be the most extreme party hacked or an imbecile. And thank God we get a two for one with Elizabeth Hasselbeck. So can I? And I know yeah. we're short on time, but I I do want to say this: it is a great privilege in this country um, that we get to vote. Wrong. Not a privilege. <laughs> Not a privilege. <laughs> right. Not a privilege. It's called a right. And it's funny. It's kind of ironic because you would think that the first person to know the difference between a right and a privilege would be someone of privilege on the right. <laughs> I was very right, proud of my, Oh, good wordplay. I was very proud of myself. Anybody can follow that? So I just corrected Elizabeth Hasselbeck about it's a right and not a privilege. Somebody else also... But for, for women, it's kind of a privilege. It is kind of a right? privilege for women. It's, it sure is. You're Thanks welcome. for letting me vote, fellas. You're welcome, 
honey. So here's don't, don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I just corrected Elizabeth Hasselbeck that about the right to privilege. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg actually corrected her in real time, and it's like water off a duck's ass to Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Here she comes back. It's that right. right to vote. It's a right. That right That's to privilege. vote, which is also a privilege. She just keeps going. <laughs> she just keeps going. No matter, just water off a duck's ass. Okay, here, let's get it, ramp it up. Vote. It's a right. That right That's to privilege. vote, which is also a privilege, as I see it as a blessing, should be protected with airtight security. Now yeah, the kind of airtight security that suffocates voter fraud and any Democrat's chance of winning. <laughs> you know, you know, you guys need to back off, and I think we should all reread the Bill of Privileges. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Elizabeth Haspel's last thing. Now, I do think the problem is that not everyone does have photo ID. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think to solve the problem it means allowing errors in our system, holes in our system to allow those in next go around, not this right. go around, to right. vote without that ID. Right. I think. Yes, you know these errors in our system. You know these that no one has ever driven these holes in our system that no one has ever driven a truck through. You know what I'm talking. About? We've got to <coughs> fix this problem that doesn't exist. And then she throws in, not this time, but next time, next time. As if so, that makes her seem reasonable that she wants to fix this problem that doesn't exist, but not right now, but next time. There's a there's a hole in Elizabeth Hasselbeck's system that I wish we would close. <laughs> <laughs> Concentration camp. Who can think in a place like this? <laughs> <laughs> Nazi party. Who's bringing the dip? Goebbels? <laughs> I just want to say for the record, Cuts. Elizabeth Hasselbeck Cuts. makes me embarrassed to be a woman. Oh. <laughs> is that terrible? That is terrible. I, I can't stand her, and I hate that she has a platform, and I can't believe that anybody can sit at that table with her and be able to ever speak directly to her. Some call me a loser. Some call me a cheater. Some say I'm a selfish, untalented dream. After four years of a black president, I'd have thought that most white Americans would be able to see past his skin color, but it sure doesn't look that way. Obama's losing the white vote 60 to 37 percent, according to a recent Washington Post poll. Back in 2008, he got 43 percent of it. Now it looks like he's going to get less. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, though, since the Romney campaign has been appealing to whites in thinly veiled and not-so-thinly-veiled ways. On the not-so-thinly-veiled side, you've got Romney's surrogate, John Sununu, saying that the main reason Colin Powell supports Obama is because they're of the same race. You've got Sarah Palin criticizing Obama for a shuck and jive on Libya. And by trying to make welfare an issue, Romney himself was playing to stereotypes, just as he was when he managed to mention food stamps twice in the foreign policy debate. This is disgusting, of course, but it's led me also to wondering whether the Obama campaign has made a mistake by emphasizing Romney's outrageous 47% comment, because many white folks may be reading that as referring not to themselves, but strictly to minorities. If that's the case, then Obama may unwittingly have widened the racial gap in this election. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
The second way to protect your vote and defeat the ballot bandits is don't let the person at the polling place talk you into a provisional ballot. Provisional ballots are like writing your vote in a fart because that's all you're left with, a faint bad smell. Provisional ballots are not generally counted, so demand a real ballot or a real explanation you can't have one. If someone hands you a provisional ballot, they're handing you a piece of paper that basically says, here's an idea, go yourself. And the odds that you'll get pregnant from that are the same as the odds we'll count your provisional vote. It's called provisional because it will be counted under the provision that pigs fly. A more accurate term is a delusional ballot because you have to be delusional to think it's not a pile of crap. A new insurance industry study for the first time links man-made climate change to the rise in extreme and expensive weather disasters. In a report on losses from extreme weather disasters in 2011, international insurance giant Munich Re, based in Germany, said that North America saw the highest increase in billion-dollar extreme weather events, saying, quote, climate-driven changes are already evident over the last few decades. Well, you wouldn't know that by watching the three presidential debates over the last couple of weeks here in the U.S. That's right. In the U.S., the C word wasn't even mentioned in this year's presidential debates. With the help of the Beltway media, the third presidential debate on Monday night made history, marking the first time in 24 years in which climate change was not even mentioned in any of the presidential debates. Why would it be mentioned this year? Just because, you know, last September was the hottest month ever recorded on the history of the planet. Yeah, go figure. Why would anybody even want to know about that? During Monday's debate, the candidate did reference clean energy and the need to make sure that we invest in it. But when debate moderator Bob Schieffer of CBS asked this... What do you believe is the greatest future threat to the national security of this country? That would have been a good time for Obama to draw a clear distinction between himself and Romney, since even the Pentagon says climate change is a threat multiplier for national security, but Romney refuses to actually acknowledge that man has anything to do with it. Instead, Obama answered terrorism is bad and China should follow trade rules, whereas Romney said... The greatest threat that the world faces, the greatest national security threat, is a nuclear Iran. Apparently, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton thinks climate change is clearly a foreign policy issue, as she noted in a major foreign policy policy speech last week on the need to invest globally in clean energy technologies to reduce pollution, create jobs, and to address the very real threat of climate change. It didn't used to be this way. Again, since 1988, climate change had been covered in every presidential debate. But the greenhouse effect is one that has to be a threat to all of us. Now, the greenhouse effect is an important environmental issue. We will soon uh, uh, see the consequences of uh, what's called global warming. What about global warming? I think it's an issue that we need to take very seriously. They pulled out of the global warming, declared it dead. Alaska feels and sees impacts of climate change more so than any other state, and we know that it's real. Well, I think it is man-made. Posing to Americans the danger that climate change opposes. We're not going to be able to deal with the climate crisis if our only solution is to use more fossil fuels that create global warming. And note that was Obama in 2008, not in 2012. If climate scientists' predictions are correct, I think future generations will mark this as a low point in world history.
There was actually a lot of talk, Andy, about why this has happened. You know, was it climate change? Was it an angry god smiting down New York for being a den of iniquity? Was it the gays' fault? You know, they often seem to get blamed for natural disasters by people who don't have any scientific pedigree but do have absolute confidence. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, there's, there's a point. There's, you know, that kind of chaos theory, you know, the butterfly flapping its wing, wing could cause, you know, an earthquake or whatever. <laughs> Similarly, you know, I mean, we all know that the gays, as a species, like mm-hmm. to dance. So, I mean, it's possible that vigorous gay dancing in New York did cause Hurricane Sandy. I'm it not a possible. scientist, but, I mean, we cannot rule that out, John. It's possible. It's not probable, but it is possible. <laughs> Andy, uh, some people have argued that this hurricane has somehow been engineered by highly paid Obama campaign operatives <laughs> to make him look good and give him a two-point boost in the polls. Uh, the federal government has actually responded extremely well to this crisis, uh, and uh, eight out of ten people have uh, apparently given the president a good or an excellent rating for his handling, uh, handling of the emergency. Uh, Romney has the problem that during the primary debates he'd spoken out against FEMA, the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, in one of his signature moments of shallow, mindless populism. <laughs> a statement he was sure to get away with as long as a major hurricane did not slam into a major American city between then and the election, providing a violent illustration of the flaw in the argument for aggressively streamlined government. As long as that didn't happen, he was going to be fine. Uh, both candidates suspended their campaigns. Uh, this week, leading some to wonder whether the hurricane was in fact an act of God, who <laughs> also have become so sick of the unremitting cynicism of this campaign that he decided to pull a micro-Noah to give himself <laughs> a 48-hour break from the incessant political posturing. I think uh, actually, it seems that America seems to have come together slightly more harmoniously than usual. Maybe, maybe if nature could schedule in one... Major catastrophe a month. I think America as a nation would be much happier and more cohesive. Well, that's the, you're not alone in thinking that because they both went out on the campaign trail again yesterday, and the president argued that, and as a quote, when disaster strikes, we see America at its best. What by candlelight? He took a George Delatour picture. He then went on to say, all the petty differences that consume us in normal times all seem to melt away. There are no Democrats or Republicans during a storm, just fellow Americans. Andy, is he trying to make people nostalgic for the time that they were being battered by 110 mile an hour winds? Because that is how bad presidential campaigns are now. It's almost preferable to have your house destroyed by flood water than to endure one more election cycle. Greg, your next quote comes from a very upset toddler in Colorado caught on a YouTube video. 
I'm, I'm, I'm tired of Bronco Obama and Mitt Romney. <laughs> <laughs> Little Abby Evans was speaking for so many of us when she said she was sick of what? The campaign? Yes, the election. If America is starting to feel like an expectant mother two weeks after her due date. Except she's pregnant with twins and the twins really hate each other. <laughs> There's so many political ads on TV right now. I spent some time in a swing state recently. There are so many political ads on TV. You're relieved when you see an actual commercial for something you don't want to buy. It's like, oh look, it's an ad for self-lubricating catheters that's so beautiful. <laughs> I'll buy a dozen. By the way, we should say that, that that little girl in that video that went viral, uh, she, she was the toddler upset about the election. She got upset because her mother was listening to NPR political coverage. It's like, come on, parents, do not play this for your children. Don't you know that NPR is rated NC-55? <laughs> uh, of course, Hurricane Sandy became fodder for the campaign. This week, uh, President Obama suspended his campaign so he could look presidential. He monitored the progress of the storm, which is basically what everybody else was doing, except he was wearing a cool Air Force One jacket. So. <laughs> and Mitt Romney uh, canceled his campaign rallies and instead held what he called storm relief rallies. They're a lot like campaign rallies, same videos, same guests, but Romney gets to wear jeans, I guess. Uh, at, at one of these Romney rallies, uh, volunteers collected canned goods for hurricane victims. Romney staffers explained to attendees that can is not just a word for firing people, it's also something that poor people <laughs> use to hold food. Do you know what I thought was weird was that he what? suspended his campaign and, and then, and I don't, you know, I think that probably was the right thing to do, honestly, but still, it was like, well, because, because Obama suspended his campaign, then Romney suspended his campaign, but Obama had to go be president and what did Romney have to go do? He had to go show what it would look like if he was president and there was a hurricane. He had to sort of do like Sears catalog poses, you know what I mean? This is the fourth way you can beat the ballot bandits on election day. Leave no vote behind. Your job is not done after you cast your vote. The second half of your job is to demand that all the votes are counted. If it seems that shenanigans are going down or if the exit polls show something different from the computers, then we all need to lose our minds. We all need to freak out worse than shaved-headed Brittany or long-bearded Mel Gibson or Chris Brown on a Tuesday. Don't go to sleep. Don't beer bong a stiff drink and call it a night. Don't flip off your TV and take your anger out on your... Hundreds of thousands of votes flipped in Ohio in 2004. Thousands of ballots lost in Florida in 2000. Hundreds of thousands of votes screwed with in Wisconsin in 2012. And each time everybody goes, man, that's such a democracy buzzkill. It might take two pints of Ben and Jerry's to get over this. Don't let that happen this time. We need to stand up like Egypt on steroids, like Greece on Viagra, like Occupy on Fun Dip. Snorted. We must demand that every single vote is counted, or else this democratic process that we're so proud of will look more like a bowel movement. 
if you're going to say that corporate media's coverage of political campaigns is awash in homogenous punditry and dull conventional wisdom, you'll get no argument from us. But to say that's the fault of the internet, and that not too long ago campaign coverage was very different, well, that doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly the case Washington Post political columnist Dana Milbank tried to make in his October 24th column. And what's making campaign journalism so bland? To Milbank, social media outlets like Twitter are to blame. Reporters have one eye on the debates and the other eye on Twitter chatter, which he says means the conventional wisdom is set almost in real time. And he sees this as a big change. Quote, not too long ago, the wire services, broadcast networks, and newspapers covered major political events differently. Each outlet had its own take and tidbits. But now everybody is operating off the same script. And except for a few ideological outliers, the product is homogenous. Close quote. Maybe he reads a different media than we do, but the most obvious aspect of big media's political coverage is how homogenous it's always been. The same pundits circulating on the Sunday chat shows, the same political consultants and talking heads, the same obsessions with gaffes, polls, and so on. You can't blame any of that on the internet. If anything, the internet has made many new voices available. People who are cut out of elite media can speak up, agitate, and fact-check. Reporters who aren't incorporating these voices into their journalism are making a choice. Blaming the internet for dull campaign coverage doesn't make any sense, but it does suggest that some reporters are looking to blame someone else for the obvious problems with their work. And speaking of efforts to cast blame, you might remember a couple of weeks ago we told you that we the people, according to Time magazine, are the reason that political candidates tell lies. We don't demand that they do otherwise, or at least we don't do it effectively. Now, the New York Times explains that we're also the reason that candidates don't talk about real issues. In an October 21st analysis, the Times' Scott Shane asks the reader this, quote, Imagine a presidential candidate who spoke with blunt honesty about American problems dwelling on measures by which the United States lags its economic peers, close quote. Such a candidate who might vow to fix child poverty, educational failures, and infant mortality would get nowhere fast, says Shane, not because journalists like himself have rarely shown those issues the sustained or fervid interest they devote to, say, the federal deficit. No, it's because people, regular Americans, quote, demand constant reassurance that their country, their achievements, and their values are extraordinary, close quote. Candidates and presidents, Shane says, generally oblige them. This is psychological projection of a pretty high order. It's for people, the Times tells us, the ones suffering with the child poverty, educational failure, and infant mortality, that, quote, it is impermissible to dwell on chronic, painful problems or on statistics that challenge the notion that the United States leads the world, close quote. It isn't pundits that, quote, ensure that many major issues are barely discussed, close quote. It's that people have an aversion to bad news. I guess that's a handy excuse for journalistic temerity and laziness. And if that doesn't work, maybe you can go back to blaming Twitter. Turn to the October 17th edition of USA Today and you see this headline in the money section, Another Blow for Green Energy. What's the story? A company that makes batteries for electric cars has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
that in itself is not really big news. But the real lesson here is about the media, which so often finds these stories important because they send a political message. The company in question, you see, got stimulus money, and so its failure is a big issue for the Mitt Romney campaign. Indeed, the USA Today article reads almost like a Romney press release, with a few quotes from the candidate and one from his campaign spokesperson. It's hard not to conclude that these companies fail all the time. Romney, in fact, said earlier this year that half of the companies receiving green energy loan guarantees had gone out of business. That is not true. In fact, the failure rate of green companies getting stimulus money is pretty low, about one percent, as measured by the amount of government money invested, according to Time reporter Michael Grunwald. But the failures, like Solyndra, are remarkably visible, and that's because Republican politicians like to talk about them, and because reporters give them a lot of attention. That surplus visibility means people are likely to get the impression that these companies are failures, and that the public investment in them is a big waste. An Obama campaign ad in Ohio faults Mitt Romney for having a Swiss bank account, wanting to maintain tax breaks for corporations that offshore jobs, and for once railing against deadly pollution from a coal plant. The ad dubs Romney not one of us. Racist, right? Well, that's how it struck Karen Tumulty of the Washington Post, who wrote that the language quote echoes a slogan that has been used as a racial code over at least the past half century. Close quote. She cites a right-wing critic at the National Review's corner blog, because that's where one goes for deep critiques of racism, and another right-wing critic on the Hot Air blog, who argued there was a double standard that a similar Romney ad would have brought charges of bigotry. Tumulty pushed the theme further by recalling racist political ads from the past that ran taglines she says were similar. It's all nonsense, of course. As is clear, the ad isn't about race at all. As an Obama spokesperson tells Tumulty, it's about the auto bailout and other economic issues. In fact, most revealingly, the commercial closes with an image of Romney saying in 2003 that a coal plant kills people. So the ad's message is that Romney is not one of us because he supports economic policies that are hostile to us. That Romney, once a fierce critic of a polluting industry, is not as friendly to the coal industry, a large employer in Ohio, as he now says he is. The odd politics of such an appeal would be a far more interesting topic than empty right-wing posturing. Mitt Romney's not only a vulture capitalist, which, by the way, was my Halloween costume, he's also a disaster capitalist, straight out of Naomi Klein's book. 
Just look at his comment again on FEMA during the Republican primaries. Every time you have an occasion to take something from the federal government and send it back to the states, that's the right direction, he said. And this is my favorite part. And if you can go even further and send it back to the private sector, that's even better, he said. Well, that's his answer for everything, isn't it? The private sector solves all. This is libertarianism on a bender. Interestingly, when he made that comment, the moderator asked a follow-up, including disaster relief, and Romney said, yes, we just can't keep paying for government programs, and he said it would be jeopardizing the future of our kids and calling it simply immoral. But what's simply immoral is letting families and communities drown in disasters that only the federal government has the resources to mitigate. No private company could provide instant disaster relief to the people of New Jersey and New York. No private company could coordinate all that needs to be done to make sure that people aren't dying in their homes. We need government for that and for a lot of other things, too. But Romney and Ryan don't want any of it. All they want is for private companies to cash in. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. This is your sixth way to beat the ballot bandits. Election day is almost here, and why would you enjoy it alone? You wouldn't do that with a candlelit dinner, or with a day at the amusement park, or with a good old-fashioned romp between the sheets. Those things are fun and important, but they're meant to be done with others. Treat voting the same. Uh, minus the whipped cream. Come to the polls with your friends and family, your neighbors and pets, your colleagues and your gastroenterologist. The more, the merrier. Make it a motherfucking razzmatazz. Your cousin may be annoying and he may talk too much about honey boo boo, but bring him with you anyway. The ballot bandits might try to steal your vote, but even if they succeed, they can't steal your whole neighborhood's votes. They have the money, but we have the numbers. The one thing that Mitt Romney has proven is that he will do what these nutsos say for him to do. Without any shame. Without any hesitation. Will Obama react any better? I don't know. Probably not. But I do know that we will not have to fight an ascendant group of people who are telling the people, uh, telling the, uh, this country and the world that climate change is a hoax. And so, I mean, I bring this up in the context of the interview with uh, Stoller yesterday. And there's uh, Chris Hedges, who I also respect, meaning I have, I have genuine respect for Stoller as well. I've known him for years. Chris Hedges says, this election is not a battle between Republicans and Democrats. It's not a battle between Obama and Romney. It's a battle between the corporate state and us. And if we do not immediately engage in this battle, we are finished. As climate scientists have made clear, I will defy corporate power in small and large ways. I will invest my energy now solely in acts of resistance and civil disobedience and defiance. For this reason, I will vote for Jill Stein. Voting for the lesser evil or failing to vote at all is part of the corporate agenda to crush what is left of our anemic democracy. I have respect for, for him, but 
there's a four-page uh, piece here that he's written out where he outlines every issue that we have discussed on this program extensively and what is problematic about uh, President Obama. He writes, the flimsy excuses used by liberals and progressives to support Obama, including the argument that we can't let Romney appoint the next Supreme Court justice, ignore the imperative of building a movement as fast and as radical as possible as a counterweight to corporate power. How does voting for Jill Stein or Rocky Anderson, I'm talking about a swing state, I think he lives in Pennsylvania, how does that I mean, I'm not even sure how it does it in a, in a, in a blue state, but let's, let's stay on point here. How does that speed up the building of a movement that is a counterweight to corporate power? This is the question that I wanted to ask Stoller, too. Where is the efficacy? Stoller claims that by having Mitt Romney, it makes our citizenship uh, citizens better. Now, presumably, I know he denied this because he doesn't know who reads his stuff, but it seems to me that there's no Republicans who are going to become better citizens with Romney. There's no Republicans who are going to stand up and say, now nah, we're going we're gonna to close down this drone program. I, I don't think so. There's no Republicans who are going to say, now we're going to fight against uh, global warming. That's not going to happen. And how is it, by having Romney, that progressives are going to become any, anti, any more anti-corporate as opposed to anti-Republican? It seems to me, based on my, my experience, I have seen more so-called mainstream people who were radicalized to the extent that they were radicalized, or at least became much more conscious of this struggle between us and corporate powers, us and the 1%, under a Democratic president than under a Republican one. I, I mean, I, I, I look at every single book that is written by, by these people. And I can tell you that during uh, 2000 to 2008, every single book by these people, by the punditocracy, by the progressive thinkers, by whatnot, were almost exclusively anti-Bush, anti-Republicans. And in 2008, there was a sea change. And then by 2009, we started seeing things like Hacker and Pearson talking about the 1%. And then we just saw essay after book after essay, movement after movement that were drawing these lines because we had a Democratic president that made it very clear what was going on. Do I, do I think this is going to continue? Yes. Particularly under a Democratic administration. That's my argument as to how having Obama versus Romney actually continues to grow this movement. But, but these guys won't even make this argument. They won't even make the argument because they know, they know that a vote for Jill Stein or Rocky Anderson at this point, they both 
virtually admitted. I mean, Stoller did. They both admit that this is going to help Romney. I don't think it would make a difference. I'm not sure at this point that it would. Because I think Romney's going to lose no matter what. But this is an important argument to have at this point. Because in two or three weeks, all this is going to be behind us. And we're going to have to create this movement going forward. And it needs to be built upon sound thinking. Stoller, at the end of the interview yesterday, you know, again, wanted to know why I was so emotional about this. Which I thought was an odd question. Because my argument is completely unemotional. It's devoid of the fact that I felt betrayed by Obama. It's devoid of the fact that I have a visceral hatred of Romney. Or that I like Jill Stein. Or I, It's completely devoid of that. I am making what is, I think, a logical argument. Not one that somehow self-affirmation based upon my vote, which to me seems totally about emotion. We're going to get a better result. You vote to get a result. Because that's it. We don't even see how you vote. How can it be a form of expression when by design it is de it is designed not in any way to be uh, to be seen by other people express yourself express yourself you don't never need help from no You know who Nate Silver is, right? Nate Silver is a guy who is an election analyst, and he got a lot of street cred in 2008 because not only did he get the general election right, but he got 49 out of 50 states right. So, of course, in the polling world, that means that, hey, you know what? You're doing something right. Now, of course, he is predicting that President Obama is going to win. Now, he doesn't say, that's it, it's over, President Obama is going to win. He's not me. He's not, he's not a a commentator or a pundit, all he does is he crunches the numbers and he says President Obama is likely to win given the polls. He looks at the polls, he looks at other indicators that were relevant historically in other elections, figures them into his analysis. That makes sense. Just crunching the numbers, kind of like an accountant, right? Well, Republicans don't like math, okay? Joe Scarborough doesn't like math. And he says, well, if you do math, you're an ideologue. In fact, watch. Nate Silver says this is a 73.6% chance that the president's going to win. Anybody that thinks that this race is anything but a toss-up right now is such an ideologue, they should be kept away from typewriters, uh, computers, laptops, and microphones for the next 10 days because they're jokes. <laughs> That's 
awesome. It's not Nate Silver's opinion that President Obama should win by 73%. He's not saying, I hope Obama wins. He's just saying, look, I looked at the polls, I averaged them together, I put in a couple other factors, and it seems to indicate 73%. Now, by the way, it has moved up. So if you can't do math, who's the joke, Joe? What an ideologue, I can't believe he thinks 2 plus 2 equals 4. Huh, how partisan and unbalanced. God, you, it's unbelievable what clowns they are. Now, then Political writes an article saying, Nate Silver could be a one-term celebrity. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, if he gets this wrong at all, we're going to call him biased. But the guy's not saying he wants Obama to win. He has no opinion on who should win. Or if he does, he's certainly keeping it to himself. He's just telling you the statistics, the polling, and the math. God, these people are unbelievable. So uh, Nate Silver decides, look, I'm a, he's going to fight back a little bit. First, he says something that's very reasonable. He says, look, I'm sure I have a lot riding on the outcome. Meaning, like, hey, they're going to judge me based on my predictions here. It's, that That's a you know the name of the game and he says I'm also sure I'll get too much credit if the prediction is right and too much blame if it is wrong and that sounds just right right uh, so uh, undeterred the rest of the all these pundits David Brooks weighs in say oh this is ridiculous because it challenges their worldview their worldview is we call everything even we, we say the Republicans say this and the Democrats say that and that's we leave it at that if you actually bring in facts into the equation well that's not fair and balanced journalism no 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 you ignore the facts and you just talk about opinion X and opinion Y so Nate Silver had enough and he says alright end of this hey Joe how about you put a thousand bucks on it? So he sends this tweet out. He says, uh, if you think it's a toss-up, let's bet. If Obama wins, you donate a thousand dollars to the American Red Cross. If Romney wins, I do. Deal? Uh, Scarborough, of course, says, no deal. He says, why don't we donate to the charity? Okay, well then, Nate writes back again. He says, a better idea. Let's bet two thousand. See, you want to give it to charity? Great, let's give it to charity. No, but I want you to put your money where your mouth is. If you think it's a joke and you can't possibly... And remember, earlier Joe Scarborough had said that he would be shocked if Obama won. But wait a minute. Why is it biased if Nate Silver gives you numbers on why he thinks President Obama is going to win based on polls? But it's not biased if you say, out of nowhere, you just pull it out of your ass, I'd be shocked if Obama wins. Why is that not a joke? Why are you not an ideologue? Well, of course you are, and that's why you don't like Nate Silver's numbers. If you're a Republican, you hate facts, you hate numbers, you hate science, you hate math. So that's why they can't stand Nate Silver with all of his numbers in there. Damn it! We've got to get that guy out of here! Celebrity! Yeah, that's what Nate Silver is. Oh, I don't think so, big guy. God, they're such knuckleheads. And what these pundits keep going back to, but I don't get it. The national race is, looks like it's 50-50. Yes, it does. But I don't know if you know this. We have an electoral college. We don't decide the presidency based on popular vote. If you don't know, call up Al Gore and George Bush. They'll let you know. God, they're so sadly stupid. And they go on there and on camera, on television every day and embarrass embarrass themselves over and over again.
This is the seventh way to beat the ballot bandits. Turn this video off. That's right. As much as it hurts me to say it, watching internet videos and Facebooking your friends is not enough. Take the resistance door to door, street to street, swingers club to swingers club. Get your ass out of the chair and talk to people, especially in Ohio and Nevada. I know you've been working on that ass groove in your chair for a long time, but it will be waiting for you when you get back. I promise. Go help get out the vote. It's one of the ways to have an impact beyond your single ballot. And besides, think of all the cool Facebook photos you'll be able to take while you're out there. Especially at the swingers club. This has been the final way to beat the Ballot Bandits. You can get the full list for free at BallotBandits.org or at the back of Greg Palace's new book, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. And I'm at LeeCamp.net. Keep fighting. Okay, so here's what happened the night, literally the night, that President Obama was sworn in as President of the United States. January 20th, 2009, 14 Republican leaders from Congress. Paul Ryan, who's running for vice president right now. Eric Cantor, who yesterday gave a talk, introduced Mitt Romney talking about how he loves bipartisanship. The uh, House whip. Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California. Pete Sessions, Republican from Texas. Jeb Henseling, Republican from Texas. Pete Hoekstra, Republican from Michigan. Dan Lundgren, Republican from California. Jim DeMint, Senator Jim... Now the followers are senators. Jim DeMint, Senator from uh, South Carolina, Republican. Don, uh, John Kyle, Republican from Arizona. Tom Coburn, Republican from Oklahoma. John Ensign, Republican from Nevada. And Bob Corker, the Republican from Tennessee. Along with them, Newt Gingrich and, Newt, and uh, Frank Luntz. These guys had a four-hour private room, invitation-only meeting the night that the rest of us were going to inaugural balls all around this city. I was at the one at Union Station here. Uh, tip of the hat, many thanks to Ellen Ratner for making that possible. The Talk Radio News Service got us tickets. And that night, these guys were sitting in the Caucus Room restaurant, this restaurant right around the corner from the back end of the building that Louise and I used to live in, just a few blocks from where we are now. It's over at the corner of 9th and D. It's a very, very fancy schmancy, upscale, very, very expensive restaurant. It's where the lobbyists go to hang out, basically, and the members of Congress. Have, you know, we've, Louise and I used to walk by there every night you know, on our way home and frequently saw members of Congress being walked out so drunk that they could, you know, had to be carried, basically, actually... I can, I can honestly say every single person I saw in that condition being carried out of the caucus room restaurant was a Republican. I'm not going to name names, but we've seen them. In any case, these 14 Republicans got together with Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor and swore a blood oath that they were going to do everything they could. Now, keep in mind, at this point in time, the, the economy was losing 800,000 jobs a month. The stock market was down around six or 7,000. It's at 13,000 now. That we were we were sliding into a Great Depression, and not just the United States, the entire world was following us. And they swore an oath to each other to be the obstructionists. As Pete Sessions, who was there, went on to say in an interview in March, just uh, you know, a couple months later, with the National Journal, a right-wing National Journal, 
This would be like the Taliban insurgency. He said we need to understand that Taliban insurgency may be required when dealing with the other side, when dealing with Democrats. We will have become the insurgency. I think insurgency is a mindset, Congressman Sessions says. Representative Kevin McCarthy, who was there, says we've got to challenge them on every single bill. Show united and unyielding opposition to the president's economic policies. These are guys, all of them, every single one of these 14 Republican legislators had voted yes to the Bush-Cheney 2008 Bear Stearns, or stimulus, excuse me. They had voted yes to bailing out Bear Stearns. They had voted yes on bailing out AIG. They had voted yes on the 2008 stimul uh, September TARP, Bush-Cheney TARP, and they had voted yes on the Bush-Cheney October TARP. So it wasn't like they were afraid to spend money to save the economy. They had been doing it, they had been trying to do it under the, under the fat last... The, the, the previous few months of the, of the Bush administration, but they swore to each other they would not do it under the Obama administration. Every one of these senior members now have threatened to, ra to shut down the government over the debt ceiling. They have filibustered more than 300 bills in Congress. Every single one of them said no to Al Franken's anti-rape amendment, to the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Fair Pay Act, uh, to, the fair, to the Lilly Ledbetter Equal, Equal Pay Act, to the, the Fair Pay Act, to an anti-outsourcing bill. They all said no to it. Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, Pete Sessions, Jeb Hensling, P. Huckstra, and Dan Lundgren, this from the, uh, the Keep Them Honest's post over at the Daily Kos back on uh, June 8th, if you want to find it in the archives. All of those guys voted no on every single piece of legislation, including increasing FEMA's budget when there are natural disasters. I mean, they literally, they were willing to bring the country to its knees over natural disasters to stop the president. So given this history of the last four years, this is how the Republicans have tried to kneecap our economy. This is Mitt Romney making his closing pitch. Mitt Romney basically saying, you know, we have... We have prevented for four years, we have prevented the President of the United States from accomplishing the things that he wanted to do. Therefore, if you reelect him, we'll continue to prevent him from doing the things he wants to do. So you should elect me because then the Republican obstructionism will stop. How is that different from the, from the, the shop owner who owns a little, uh, you know, pizzeria in Little Italy in New York City? And the, and the mob guy comes by with a baseball bat in his hand and says, Hey, nice uh, star you got here. Be a shame if anything happened. Uh, maybe a baseball bat went through the windows or something. You know, you give us 50 bucks a week and we can make sure nothing happens to you, buddy. Here's Mitt Romney making that pitch. It's within the power of the American people to choose their own future. We know what we need to know. You can stay on the path of the last four years, or you can choose real change. You know that if the president is reelected, he will still be unable to work with the people in Congress. I mean, he's ignored them, he's attacked them, he's blamed them. The debt ceiling will come up again, and shutdown and default will be threatened, chilling the economy. The president was right when he said he can't change Washington from the inside. In this case, you can take him at his word. We're going to put him outside soon. Strategy. Literally since that night, that meeting in the caucus room, 
when the following members of Congress committed treason against the United States of America, and I realize I'm saying this on the air to three million people right now, I I defy you. Any of you any of the any of these guys call into this show, sue me, go you know, prove me wrong. Congressman Paul Ryan, you committed treason. Congressman Eric Cantor, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, Congressman Pete Sessions, Jeb Henseling, Pete Hoekstra, Dan Lundgren, Senator Jim DeMint, Senator Tom, John Kyle, Senator Tom Coburn, Senator John Ensign, Senator Bob Corker. You violated your oath of office. You swore to each other not to uphold the Constitution of the United States, not to defend the people of the United States and the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, political and domestic, or foreign and domestic. You decided to become an enemy of the United States domestically. Newt Gingrich, as he left that meeting, said, quote, you'll remember this as the day the seeds of 2012 were sown. And you just heard Mitt Romney wrap, you know, close that circle, wrap that argument. Republican leaders in Congress literally plotting the night that President Obama was being inaugurated in the caucus room restaurant right here in Washington, D.C., plotting to bring this country economically to its knees so that a Democratic president would be blamed for it. And they have done their best. They have fought everything. I mean, the president's job bill, which would have put a million people to work immediately, you know, a year ago, he proposed this thing. In the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, they wouldn't even bring it up for a vote. Harry Reid brought it up for a vote for the, in the Senate. The Republicans filibustered it. Legislation that that uh, Nancy Pelosi during the two years when they controlled the when the Democrats controlled the House, they only controlled the Senate for two months and one day. And they got a hell of a lot done in those two months and one day and a little more. Middle, the largest middle tax class, tax class tax cut in history saved Chrysler, saved GM, stopped 800,000 jobs a month from vanishing, increased education spending, got the banksters out of the student loan business, saving 80 billion dollars for, for more student loans. Passed hate crime laws, expanded the Affordable the Affordable Care Act, the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIPS was expanded, child labor laws were enforced, Wall Street reform. They got a lot done. Undecided by David Sedaris, excerpted and read with permission. I don't know that it was always this way, but for as long as I can remember, just as we move into the final weeks of the presidential campaign, the focus shifts to the undecided voters. Who are they, the news anchors ask, and how might they determine the outcome of this election? 
Then you'll see this man or woman, someone I always think, who looks very happy to be on TV. Well, Charlie, they say, I've gone back and forth on the issues and whatnot, but I just can't seem to make up my mind. Some insist that there is very little difference between candidate A and candidate B. Others claim that they're with A on defense and health care, but they're leaning toward B when it comes to the economy. I look at these people and can't quite believe that they exist. Are they professional actors, I wonder? Or are they simply laymen who want a lot of attention? To put them in perspective, I think of being on an airplane. The flight attendant comes down the aisle with her food cart and, eventually, parks it beside my seat. Can I interest you in the chicken, she asks, or would you prefer the platter of shit with bits of broken glass in it? To be undecided in this election is to pause for a moment and then ask how the chicken is cooked. I mean, really, what's to be confused about? I wonder if, in the end, the undecideds aren't the biggest pessimists of all. Here they could order the airline chicken, but then again, hmm, isn't it adding an extra step, they ask themselves? If it's all going to be chewed up and swallowed, why not cut to the chase and go with the platter of shit? Ah, though, that's where the broken glass comes in. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any thoughts, concerns, actions, or reactions to the election before, during, or after everything is decided, then please feel free to call in and share whatever you would like to add at 206-202-3410. If you have something else to talk about, then I suppose you can feel free to do that as well. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's been voting for the show at the Stitcher Awards. I will be sure to let you know the results of that. I don't know what they are yet. Uh, The Podcast Awards at podcastawards.com are... uh, Uh, in full swing as we speak. So since we are all in the voting spirit, I hope that uh, we can keep that going and that you will vote every day uh, for the podcast awards uh, from now through November 15th. And this is, this is the last I know of. I know all this whole voting thing, all these awards, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon for sure. But uh, especially with the podcast awards, there are a whole lot of shows that are actually related to or friends of uh, Best of the Left who are nominated. So there are lots of shows in lots of different categories that you should be excited to help support and go vote for every day. So if you want to vote a straight ticket of all my recommendations, uh, here's my slate personally. Uh, People's Choice Award, Sam Cedar over at the Majority Report show is uh, nominated for a People's Choice. Uh, Best of the Left is nominated for a Best Produced Podcast. The Best Video Podcast is The Young Turks, good friends of mine, regularly played on the show. Uh, Best Comedy Show, Citizen Radio, is nominated. They have been played on the show many times in the past and, and are a great comedy show. Cultural and Arts. The Moth Podcast has been played on the show in, in, in the past and is a fantastic show. Uh, best Education Show, Hardcore History, is done by Dan Carlin, who also does Common Sense. Uh, Common Sense with Dan Carlin. He gets played on the show regularly and is a friend of the show. Uh, Throwing Shade, pretty new show, is uh, nominated as a uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender category and they're fantastic hilarious get played on the show are also friends of the show in the mature category even savage love dan savage does his uh, sex advice column podcast and does political commentary i put him in the show every once in a while and he has uh, great insights so he's nominated 
best politics and news again that is best of the left and uh and even best science podcast radio lab is just the best show on the face of the planet if you haven't heard of it yet i you know many many people not just me uh consider it to be like this american life but for science and if you haven't heard of this american life that's the other show that used to be what i considered the best show on the planet until i heard radio lab so um, that it's an amazing slate of, of shows available to vote for. Uh, so please consider doing what I've done. I have a timer that goes off every day to remind me to vote. And it is an absolute pleasure to go and help support all these different shows in all these different categories. Uh, I have absolutely no compunction uh, going and, and supporting all of them. And I know that every one of them appreciates the support of your vote and, and the extra a little bit of exposure it will bring to them if they were to win. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the show. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. I'll see you all on the other side. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you wanna meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out any open door This is not my life just a fun friend.